Welcome to the CSLP Podcast, where we're helping to educate, inform, and assist financial professionals and student loan borrowers to make smarter repayment decisions. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the uh, latest edition of the CSLP Podcast. I'm here with Heather Jarvis. This is Jance Hoffman. And it's been a little while, but we are happy to get back into it and uh, to talk all of the world of student loans. And boy, is there a lot to talk about. Um, Heather uh, is with uh, is with me. And um, as some of you may know, uh, her time has been a bit limited recently because she is a uh, special advisor to the rule negotiating process representing public service, uh, lo- public service employers in the administration's changing of the regulations of how student loan repayment is being administered. So, Heather, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your position there and and um, what you guys are doing? Yeah, absolutely. So the Department of Education has convened a negotiated rulemaking session. There are certain kinds of regulations that are required to be made by this process of negotiation. And it's pretty cool. What they do is they appoint um, representatives to the committee from a lot of different constituencies that are affected by the rules. So this is like, you know, university officials, a uh, student loan borrowers are represented, students are represented, um, legal aid organizations are represented, and there's a, you know, a few sort of subsections within that. Um, I have a kind of a role that is apparently rather new. I'm not a member of the committee, so I don't have voting rights um, when the committee is looking to reach consensus but I'm uh, appointed to advise the committee um, in particular about public service loan forgiveness, which is, you know, I am a big, big fan of, especially recently because there's all kinds of exciting new changes that we're going to talk about today. Um, But a couple more words, you know, maybe about the negotiated rulemaking process, um, Jance, which is that this is, this committee is going to continue to meet. These hearings are um, public. And the committee tries to reach consensus on proposed changes to the rules. And right now, the committee is considering a lot of different important things. Um, the, the main things that are of interest to, to me and many of the financial advisors that, that we work with, Jance, um, are, are the public service loan forgiveness program and the income-driven repayment plans that the uh, Department of Education administers. But there are also a lot of other important issues that have to do with discharge of student loans, primarily in the case of um, bad actions by schools. So things like fraud and abuse, but they're also looking at um, uh, other things, including disability discharges. So there are a lot of um, important things uh, um, on the agenda including these borrower defense rules that had been uh, previously uh, had been gutted by the previous administration. So it's it's good news. There's a lot of potential for positive change to come out of the committee. Um, the rules when they when they are finalized um, would be expected to take effect not until 2023 unless the department um, accelerates their application, which they are permitted to do and they may decide to do. Um, But in a nutshell, that's what is going on with uh, the negotiated rulemaking committee. Well, that's that's great. And it's really exciting. And I think a little later uh, in in our our episode here, we'll, we'll dive into some of the changes that may be going through the rule negotiating process. But I just want to make sure that we don't get you in any trouble um, when we talk about those changes or, or potential changes that could be going in, as, as I'm sure you're privy to some information that may not be public, may not be settled yet. And certainly um, around that rule negotiating process, there's there's going to be some give and take with the various um, stakeholders in ed and nothing settled settled yet. But there will be something likely that will that will be changes and and so I just want to make sure as we discuss that, please don't feel that you're uh, in any position to, to, to tip your hat or Ed's position on, on anything that, that has yet to be made public. Got it. Thanks, Jance. I'll be sure to only say what I feel I can say, um, which is that, you know, this process is 
um, is, is a good one that allows for different voices to be heard. Um, but interestingly, you know, the committee will have power if, if it reaches consensus on particular subjects and consensus is, um, you know, unanimous agreement. And so if the, if, if even one member of this negotiated rulemaking committee d decides that they do object to any of the proposed changes, then consensus is not reached and in that case, the Department of Education will be responsible for the language of the new rules itself. It, it does not have to accept um, the ideas that are offered from the outside unless the, the entire committee reaches consensus. So that said, I may well talk about throughout this episode um, some of my, my ideas and some of the proposals that are already you know, publicly available and will i can i'm happy to tell you you know sort of where i think things might end up but uh just as you said jance it's not a done deal yet and uh you know it's not over uh till it's over right and you know the, the what i would say the good takeaway that i see from this process is it's a real change in the mindset from the department of education versus what we've been experiencing over the last four years and really even more than the last four years um, Ed is really looking at the ways in which the laws are being applied um, in a way that, that's going to be more consumer friendly um, and ways that are going to provide promises that have been made that that number of studies have shown haven't been fulfilled on. Right. If we look at income driven repayments and, and balances and we look at the problems with servicers and we look at you know, specifically public service loan forgiveness, these are all problems that have existed for you know, 10 years or more in the administration of loan repayment. And it really feels as though the department is coming in and trying to modify the way that the laws are being applied in a way that's going to be much more favorable to borrowers and a way that's going to hold loan servicers much more accountable than they have been in the past. That's right. That's right. And the, the department has has um, indicated that that it wishes to develop new rules that will serve the um, the public and including borrowers uh, better than in the past. And the department also acknowledges that the rules are only one part of of the issue. So there are some um, instances where you know applying the rules and as you mentioned, loan servicing. Uh, some of that is really in the implementation of the rules. And so there's only so much that the that the rules can do. Um, we want to we want to simplify and improve the rules so that they are work better for borrowers. Um, but it, it will also be necessary for the department to improve their oversight of loan servicers and to improve accountability um, among servicers. And some of that will need to be um, in addition to the rulemaking process. It will be um, more administrative and operational um, in nature. So there will continue to be opportunities for us to advocate on behalf of student loan borrowers, Chance. I, I, don't, I don't know if you were worried that everything was going to be great for borrowers and that you would no longer have to work so hard, but that's not um, probably going to be the case. Uh, I can table my vacation plans once again. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I'm excited to kind of see the changes and obviously to have servicers held more accountable, assuming the servicers are willing to stay in the game of being held accountable, which we're sort of finding may not be the case in some instances. Um, I mean, who's even going to service loans? I don't even know. It's like, you know, there's what we're referring to in case our listeners are not as, um, you know, nerdy as we are, hopefully, that Fed Loan Servicing has determined that it's leaving the servicing business, and so has uh, Navient, a big um, player. And so it's a little bit unclear at this point where all these loans will be will be transferred. Um, I know that you know Mohila is still in the business, and we'll just have to see how that goes. Yeah, I mean, I, I from my standpoint, I see these servicers only leaving the business as private for-profit entities um, because they look at it and say, well, 
the money I bring in plus the cost that's going to be bared to actually administer this the way I'm supposed to administer it or the penalties I will incur for not administering it the correct way uh, doesn't make it the, the contract worthwhile, right? Um, I, otherwise, they would continue to do it. So, um, right. you well, know, I, in the case of a nonprofit, you know, FedLoan is a non not-for-profit servicing agency. Now, right. and, and you're always explaining to me how, you know, tax-exempt and nonprofit are not the same thing. So, you know, I think that that's, that's right, that they're, that just as you say, there isn't enough in it for them um, to do a good job servicing the loans. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out, and we can talk a little bit of, more about that later if we have time. But um, you know, the the big news that came out this this past week was this um, ex a temporary waiver for public service loan forgiveness, um, and, and this is something that uh, I'm sure you've been getting uh, one or two emails every five minutes about. <laughs> uh, um, and hopefully that this podcast will go a long way in answering some of those questions for people. Uh, but yeah. can you tell us a little bit about what what is temporary waiver public service loan forgiveness? Yeah. So what happened is on October 6th, 2021, the Department of Education announced that they are changing the public service loan forgiveness program rules. They're doing it for a limited time. So as you said, this is this is temporary and for a limited period of time, there is a waiver on certain of the public service loan forgiveness requirements. And interestingly, from my perspective, the uh, authority that the Department of Education is relying upon is tied to the national emergency related to COVID-19. So um, our listeners may know that throughout the pandemic, the uh, government, the federal government, including the Department of Education, has taken steps to relieve some of the financial pressure on individuals and our economy, including doing things like suspending the requirement to make payments and suspending the interest accrual on federally held student loans. And so because of the national emergency, under legislation called the HEROES Act, the Department of Education has authority to make um, adjustments to student loans, including allowing certain relief and forgivenesses that they may might not be authorized to do in normal times. Um, and so the gist of the public service loan forgiveness limited waiver opportunity is that student loan borrowers can now receive credit for payments they made in the past that did not otherwise qualify as payments towards public service loan forgiveness. So there are new rules about qualifying payments. Um, and, you know, people who have listened to us in the past have heard us say things like, you know, to get public service loan forgiveness, you have to make the right kind of payments on the right kind of loans while you're working in the right kind of job. Well, under the limited waiver opportunity, any prior payments made while working in full-time qualifying public service can count towards, towards forgiveness. So what borrowers need is qualifying employment, full-time public service employment. But then if, if they have had such employment and they have um, loans that would not have otherwise been eligible, like those older fell loans, for example, and also Perkins loans, or if they made payments under the wrong repayment plan, like a graduated or extended plan, um, or if they didn't make a full payment or an on-time payment, those kinds of um, payments that were slipping through the cracks will now be counted if borrowers take specific actions. And that's why we really need to go through like exactly who can benefit and what they need to do. Right. So, so this period to get this additional counting of payments that otherwise would not qualify has to be done within the next year. And in order for it to, in order for someone to get an additional credit, what they really need more than anything else is qualifying employment. And so I think it's important that we 
that we define what that qualifying employment is. And, and the Department of Education has stated that qualifying employment is full-time employment with either a government or nonprofit tax-exempt 501c3 organization that is defined by that employer, or if somebody worked for two employers, the cumulative hours between two employers needed to be on average 30 hours or more, and that would also be a, a, a satisfactory requirement of qualifying employment. So what matters most is this qualifying employment full-time status in the government or nonprofit sector. And there's two ways that you can get it, either by being full-time with, say, a hospital or a state or local municipality, or being part-time with two or more organizations that are qualifying employers, and the total number of hours is 30 or more. That's right. And Jens, can you remind our listeners the the effective date of public service loan forgiveness? So do people get to count their public service all the way um, from the past, or is there a date upon which that took effect? Yes. So even though someone may have had 20 years of time serving in the public sector, uh, the, the public service loan forgiveness program was created via the cost uh, the College Cost Reduction Act in October of 2007. Uh, and the effective date of all payments that count are after the, the date in which that law was passed. Um, so any service commitment period time prior to October of 2007 would not count towards the 120 payments. So we're really looking at, uh, you know, about uh, a 14-year period, if we look back from now, where the 10 years uh, would have to be service served under. If any of the employment was before that, um, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't count towards the increased payments that a borrower could have during this limited waiver. That's right. That's right. So what, what we'd like to talk about is how people can find out if they qualify for additional credit towards forgiveness. So um, again, the, the way that forgiveness is assessed is by the making of payments, 120 qualifying payments. And now additional payments may qualify that did not previously qualify. A person still has to have 120 payments. So they have to be employed full time for at least 10 years because the, the 120 is meant to be a proxy for um, the number of months in a 10-year period. So, so whether people have um, access now to additional payments that were not previously counted is going to depend in part on the types of loans that they have. Um, so um, people need to find out what type of loans they have. Um, and the way to find out what kind of loans uh, you have is to log into the studentaid.gov website using your federal student aid username and password. Um, oh, and do, people should also be sure that their contact information is up to date there in that federal website. Um, and then they need to go and visit something called the aid summary. So when you log in to your account, you can view your aid summary. Um, and then once you're on that page, you can scroll down to where the loans are broken down. It's the loan breakdown section. And that's gonna list every loan that the borrower has ever taken out from the federal government. Um, and it even lists loans that were later consolidated. So it'll show every single loan. And when you look at the loan details, there's a little arrow there next to the each loan where you can look at the details. And what folks need to look for is the name of the loan. So the, the loans are either going to say direct, it's either gonna be a loan that uh, starts with the word direct, or it's going to be something else, like a FEL loan, FEL meaning Federal Family Education Loans, and that usually will have that acronym there. Um, there's also something called a Perkins loan, uh, which is a, a campus-based federal loan. Um, some people may have parent plus loans. Those are not eligible for the limited waiver, according to the Department of Education, although I'm still trying to argue about that. 
Um, and so people really need to look to see whether all of their loans are direct or whether they have any loans that are not direct. Mm -hmm. and, and, and this is important because um, only direct loans can be discharged by the Department of Education uh, under the Public Service Loan for Forgiveness program. So Perkins loans and Fell loans or some of these other maybe health profession loans that uh, are from some legacy programs, um, they may still be in existence, but the Department of Education doesn't have the authority to cancel those loans under this public service loan forgiveness program. And part of the temporary waiver allows individuals to consolidate their loans from, say, the Fell program or Perkins loans into the direct loans program, and they're able to get credit for the qualifying payments towards public service loan forgiveness that were made prior to the consolidation. And this has been an issue for a lot of borrowers because historically, when somebody did a consolidation because they realized they had the wrong type of loans for public service loan forgiveness, they would lose their payment history. Um, and that's one of the risks of doing a consolidation is that losing that payment history may set you back uh, in terms of uh, other forgiveness programs. Or even if you already have direct loans, uh, people have consolidated in the past and lost payment history on the previous direct loans they have. So there's a, 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 another part of this waiver that's very important. It is sort of piercing the veil of the consolidation to allow for credit to be given to the, the post-consolidation loan for service commitment periods towards public service loan forgiveness before the consolidation occurred. That's right. And so to to unpack what Jant said just a little bit, because there's a lot there, um, the in the past, it was not possible for borrowers to get any credit for payments that were made on loans that were not direct loans. So whether you consolidated or not, you could make payments all day on a fell loan and or, you know, for a decade, two decades and never get any loan forgiveness. Because as Jan said, the fell loans are not forgivable by the federal government because the federal government doesn't own them. They're not owed to the federal government. And you can't forgive debt that's owed to someone else, right? Like I can't, I can't just say to Jan's, hey, don't worry about making your mortgage payment next month because I've forgiven your loan when his mortgage company has not, in fact, forgiven his loan. Um, so in the past, you couldn't, you couldn't get any credit for payments made on fell loans. Now, during this limited waiver, you can get credit for payments made on fell loans if you were working full time for, in public service. But the only way, and this is sort of another piece of what Jance just said, the only way that the federal government is going to count those payments on those fell loans or be able to credit you with the time toward forgiveness is if they are now consolidated during this limited waiver period, which as you mentioned, Jance, goes for a year until October 31st, 2022. Um, and, and the reason that that date has been selected is that that's apparently the, the federal government's current position on how long the national emergency will last. It will last until at least <laughs> Halloween of 2022. Um, and that is the authority that, that Ed is using. Yeah. And so the consolidation is important because if a borrower has Fell loans or Perkins loans and has also been spending their career or parts of their career in public service, they need to consolidate those loans to the direct loans program so that they can get credit for that service period prior to the consolidation, whether that be 10 years, 12 years or two years. Um, that's going to help them with that payment count. But there's also a, a, a concern here as well. Um, and that is that at this point in time, um, there's no indication that the department is going to give credit towards other forgiveness opportunities after the consolidation. So, for instance, some borrowers may be uh, on an income-based repayment plan working towards a 25-year forgiveness term on federal family education loans. However, um, if they did this consolidation, they would be starting that clock over. So if a borrower is not going to complete their 120 
qualifying payments towards public service. They actually could be setting themselves back in terms of when they would achieve forgiveness on their existing fell loans that could be being paid under an income-based plan or Perkins loans that could be working towards a Perkins cancellation program. Right. So normally and and all the time, including now, we warn people to be cautious about consolidating because when when you consolidate, a new loan is issued and the new loan repays the underlying loans. And typically then the new loan has its own brand new payment history of, of no payments until you make your first payment. And so what, what Jance's point is that people have been invited to consolidate into direct in order to get credit for payments made on these fell loans towards public service loan forgiveness. Um, but it, but payments made on fell loans and other loans um, are also at the same time they're moving toward public service loan forgiveness are also in a parallel track moving toward the longer term cancellation that it accompanies each of these income driven plans, including income based repayment. And so normally when you get a consolidation loan, you're, you're starting right back at the at the starting line. Um, and although the Department of Education has said that 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 that's the way consolidating is the way to get them to look at your fell loans and see the payments you've made towards PSLF. Um, they have not spoken with regard to whether that will uh, reset the clock towards forgiveness. Um, I do think so. I think Jance's warning is well is well placed, um, but I also think it's possible that um, the Department of Education will further clarify some of these things. So. You know, Jance and I are talking here on October 15th, 2021. This information just dropped a week ago, and there will be likely additional um, information published, and, and there may even be some um, responsiveness on the part of the department to these kinds of questions. Right. And, and let's just say, you know, I'm a borrower and, and, and common practice is I'm a borrower and, and, and the FELL program ended in 2010. So this program hasn't been making loans for 10 years. Um, so I may, as a borrower, I may have loans that are family federal, federal family education loans, but then I may also have direct loans that were made more recently as well. And if I were looking at my list of loans and looking at, you know, do I need to consolidate and, and I'm pursuing public service, um, I would identify that I need to consolidate, but I wouldn't necessarily need to consolidate all of my loans. I could just consolidate those old fell loans um, and there's, there's, there would be benefit to it. I would save the payment history on the direct loans that I already have, um, but also um, maybe something happens where I default later in life. And if I consolidated all my loans, I lose one of my opportunities to cure default. So it, it kind of goes through everything we always talk about with consolidation is, is we, you need to be strategic and really think through whether or not consolidation makes sense. And if so, for which loans and when, uh, because you don't necessarily just want to consolidate all your loans because you already had direct loans or because you had one fell loan. You really need to be strategic and look at your loans uh, to determine what is the proper course of action. That's exactly right. And, and everyone's situation is different, you know, so it, just like with every student loan case, it's important to really know exactly what kind of loans you're dealing with, exactly what the um, opportunities and risks are so that the um, decisions that are made by the borrower can end up be, you know, being in his or her uh, best interest. Um, and so, you know, to the extent that we do have student loan borrowers that listen to our podcast, um, probably would just be, you know, in order to address their own insomnia or something, probably. Um, but it, the what borrowers need to do and, and what advisors need to advise borrowers to do is to is to check and see for sure what kind of loans do you have and, and double and tri triple check to make sure you know whether you have a combination of direct and other loans or or what um, and then what's also important as we as we have introduced this um, idea is to is to certify the public service um, that you've done so there may be 
um, some people, Jans, who've been working in public service who thought, well, I don't need to certify my employment because I don't have the right kind of loans anyway, so it's not going to make any difference. And, and now it might um, because th they um, have this access to this limited waiver. Right. So certainly certifying that employment is is going to be valid. And, and even if that employment extends beyond the October 1st or the October 2007 date, you know, my advice at this point in time to everyone is just certify any public service employment that you have. If, if you're unsure, get it in, get it served, get it certified, because that's really what the Department of Education is looking at. Um, and, and if we, Heather, for a second, put aside the consolidation and the, the FELL component, and we just look now to, to payments and um, certified uh, service periods with the public employer, um, how do we now look at maybe people that already have direct loans or have already consolidated the direct loans program? Um, and, and, and this temporary uh, waiver is going to allow the, them to also get credit for additional payments that they may previously have not gotten because it's not just payments made on loans that didn't count, it's also um, an expanded term of what a qualifying payment means. So can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the problems that borrowers have been facing in the administration of public service loan forgiveness so far is in addition to these questions we've said about loan type, is is to do with the repayment plan that a person has been enrolled in and also specifics about the payments that they make so in under the previous rules you you were you needed to be enrolled in an income driven repayment plan for a payment to count towards public service loan forgiveness or a standard 10-year repayment term um, but you um, but so, but not all of us were. So you you will now have an opportunity to receive additional credit for payments that were made under the wrong repayment plan. But in addition to that, some payments were not counted because they were um, a little bit late or a little bit early. Uh, and those payments will also be counted now in a way that they were not um, similarly, payments that were made that were not quite the right amount, that were maybe, you know, a dollar short, were not counted previously and will now be counted. So there are people who will see their qualifying payment counts go up. And what the Department of Education has said is that this is, this is going to be reviewed, the, the payment counts will be reviewed for borrowers who have submitted employment certification forms. So if you have not submitted employment certification forms for all of your time in public service beginning October 1st, 2007, now is the time to do it. And certainly before October 31st, 2022. So if a person files this employment certification form, that is meant to trigger um, a review of the payments that were made during the period of public service. And the definition of what counts as a qualifying payment is going to be a lot more broad for a period of time. Um, so the other part of that, Jance, is that they've said that if you've already submitted an employment certification form, so you've already documented your work in public service, um, the department has indicated that that they will review your payment history and increase your payment count if you had made any payments on, you know, the wrong kind of repayment plan or or otherwise unqualified. Right. And, and that's supposed to be automatic. Right. And, and we it's supposed to be automatic. And, you know, I, and we trust Fed Loans is going to do that. Right. Um, <laughs> when I, um, they quit. Uh, no, um, we don't <laughs> trust. We don't trust Fed Loans. They got it wrong the first time, the second time and every time. And they're going to get it wrong this time, too, would be my guess. So, you know, Jance and I not liking to leave things to chance. Um, we're recommending that people you know, write letters because letters that are on paper and received via mail 
are processed differently and get different kind of attention than making phone calls or sending emails to FedLoan. So I think paper letters that say, hey, um, recount my payments and give me credit for all the payments I made while I've been in public service. Um, and if, if you haven't checked, you know, what records FedLoan has on your account, it, you really should. Um, and actually, you know, Jance, that's another thing. I, I don't know if I've talked to you about this before, but I have this crazy idea that, um, you know, borrowers ought to really make sure that they get all of their payment history off of their FedLoan portal before it disappears in case we, in case those are not preserved or easy to access after that. Right. And, 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 you know, many of these borrowers aren't going to be with fed loan at all, right? If, if they mm -hmm. maybe submitted an employment certification, but they only had fell loans or, or they just didn't think that they qualified, they may not have ever even submitted one. So their loans may be with um, AES or some other loan service, right? I mean, back in the day, even like Wells Fargo and, and some of the banks serviced the, the fell loans, right? Um, mm -hmm. So these loans could be could be in some pretty obscure places that end up getting transferred over. And the, the, the records that come are going to be spotty at best, right? Um, and so I think it's important that borrowers and advisors do a little due diligence on their own. And as you said, sort of assert as to how many qualifying payments or when qualifying payments should count from. Um, and, and I and one way to look at that, and I believe we've had this conversation, is that we think that Ed will be relying on the NSLDS records to determine whether or not a borrower is in repayment or not to give them credit for that qualifying service period, correct? I believe that's the case. I know that they are using the NSLDS or the National Student Loan Data System uh, information. I know they're using that to issue you know sweeping forgiveness to folks whose employment is certified by a data match that they're doing with like for example department of defense records for those who service members um and so yes i think it is it is in the interest of the borrower to to not to try to do like what we used to do in the past is we used to try to we would argue every payment you know we'd say hey why are you not counting this payment in March of 2018, um, when I made one, because it was so unclear, like, you know, there was so much um, confusion about what was counting and what wasn't counting. Um, and now I think that the that the way to get the uh, review that borrowers are entitled to is to just be sure that you have officially documented using the public service loan forgiveness employment certification form. And I guess it, it's employment certification and application for forgiveness. Um, use that form, document your employment, and then um, follow up or include um, a letter that says, hey, I've been employed full-time in public service since this date and through that date and, and have also been making payments on my loans. So give me credit for a number of months that is equivalent to the number of months I've worked full-time in public service. Um, and then let the Department of Education worry about whether they want to take the time to um, you know, find a couple of months where they could deny you credit. Right. And, and for the CSLP that, that we've worked with and have gone through this CSLP course, they're very familiar with, we call it the data download or the MyA download, it's called on the site now. Um, and that's important, too, because borrowers are only going to get credit, not just for the period of, of service commitment, but also for periods when their loans were actually in repayment. Right. So loans could have been issued to them over a four or six year period of time while they were going to school. And then they have a grace period, some of them, and then into repayment after that. And the NSLDS records for each loan have the history of the loan, when it was dispersed, when it entered repayment. Um, and, and though it, it, when it, the loan entered repayment, it may have been in different repayment, you know, uh, repayment plans. It may have gone to forbearance or deferment during certain periods after that. Um, but that re that entering repayment date is an important date for the advisors who are really more uh, educated here to kind of dig into to help set the expectations for their clients to say, hey, 
yeah, you may have been working in a public service role since 2005, but your loans didn't enter repayment until 2012. So we can't expect them to count any of the any of the service commitment prior to your loans entering repayment. That's right. So, you know, I mean, in really people are are meant to be making payments for the whole time of their service commitment. And it is it is now the case under this um, limited waiver that they'll be able to be credited for certain periods um, where otherwise payments might not have counted. But it, it the department has not gone so far as to say, like, Hey, you don't even have to have been in a repayment status or making a payment. Um, I think it, that it is possible that they will count certain periods of deferment. Um, for example, for service members who were in um, combat zones, um, but they have not promised to count, you know, periods that are not um, repayment or uh, for anyone else. Um, but they have said that, you know, past payments under any plan and previously ineligible loan payments may count uh, towards the 120. Um, and so, you know, really the thing to do is to make sure that you're having your loan history um, reviewed and hopefully your payment count bulked up, uh, which can only happen if you file that employment certification form. Right. And and so, you know, that if we dig into the NSLDS, that's might be too nerdy for some of our borrowers to listen to. Um, but that the NSLDS uh, records, particularly for more recent loans, the, the records for older fell loans are almost non-existent in the NSLDS because the records don't really exist. Uh, but as time has gone on, the reporting and record keeping of that has improved. So for most borrowers that are relatively recent borrowers in the last 10 years, um, they can log in and they will see the status of each loan and the date that it entered repayment, the date that it went into forbearance, that it went back into repayment and into forbearance. And it, it won't necessarily say what repayment plan they were on, but a borrower would know that their loans were in a repayment status after that date until the next date. And it's, it's pretty convoluted to dig through that file. And that's why we do go into detail in the CSLP coursework about you know, what's in the file and what does it look like to break it down for advisors. Um, but but that will kind of help because borrowers will want to have an idea as to how many payments they should be getting credit for that maybe they didn't before or increased to. Um, just if, if for anything else, to be able to hold Fed loans somewhat accountable to the number that they come up with. That's right. Yep, absolutely. That's good advice. And, and I want to point out one other thing, as I think we're kind of getting near the end of this uh, expanded waiver, temporary waiver here, um, is some borrowers will have completed their 120 qualifying payments after their count is increased. Um, and for those individuals, they're able to get forgiveness now when that gets increased. And, and two things with that. One is Historically, borrowers have had to continue to work in the public sector through the time that their loans are actually discharged. And this waiver doesn't require that. So even if somebody worked for 10 years and they have now since moved on to private service or have retired, they would be eligible for forgiveness, even though they're not currently still working in the public sector. Um, and, and for those borrowers that may get their number bumped up and they find out that they get credit for 10 years worth of payments, plus they've already made two more, they actually should be refunded back any payments in excess of the 120 that they've made for each loan. That's right. And, and the Department of Education has said that for those who have made more than 120 payments, that they will automatically receive a refund for the qualifying payments they made in excess of 120. Um, and they say borrowers will be notified when their loans are forgiven. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's really important to have your, your um, address and phone number, email up to date in the federal student aid system through studentaid.gov. 
that's in addition to through your loan servicer. Um, so, and also I, you know, as usual, I think I'd be surprised if that is going to automatically happen in every case. So if, if you are a person who uh, this may apply to, you may need to follow up again with some letters. Um, but also, Jance, what they have said is if, if you've already gotten public service loan forgiveness, so there are people who have had their remaining balances canceled, and they may have made more payments towards forgiveness than what they would have had to make under these new temporary rules. Um, but those folks who've already received forgiveness are not going to get any refunds for overpayments. Um, that is um, one of the um, rules that the department has announced. Right. Yeah. And and so, uh, you know, borrowers need to be aware of that count, sort of what's happening. And there's really going to be three potential outcomes for borrowers, right? They're either going to have their count increased to 120 more or more, in which case they're eligible for forgiveness. They're either going to have their their account increased to some number less than 120, but more than it was before, in which case they're going to be that much closer to their 120. But, you know, for many borrowers who maybe are, you know, had direct loans or have only been working in public service for two years, it's likely that many borrowers are going to have no change at all through this waiver. That's right. Yep. That will be the case. So if you, if you're someone, and this is going to be more recent graduates, if you, you know, if you already had all direct loans or if you got all the information early on and were able to consolidate non-eligible loans and start making payments towards forgiveness, if you've been, you know, successfully jumping through all their hoops, um, it may be that you don't have any more payments to be credited, but I, I can tell you, you know, I have, um, I have rarely looked at anyone's accounts through FedLoan and not seen at least a few payments that were, you know, seen as non-qualifying for some little nitpicky reason, which is why we are here today, because this these problems of counting payments have been so widespread through the system um, that we really need to do something to correct it. Um, but you're right, some folks are already on track um, and won't get any boost from this waiver. Um, but those folks, and I think this is what you were maybe going to segue to here soon, um, there, there may be some um, improvement to the rules that come out of this negotiated rulemaking process that could be of use to um, borrowers in the future. Right. And, and, and so as we've talked about, this is a, a limited period, right? This is one year to get your counts boosted up. Um, but beyond this, if you don't take advantage of it, you won't get any additional credit for these boosts, right? But through the rule negotiating process that you are uh, privy to and part of, um, there are going to be some long-term changes that could benefit borrowers uh, significantly. Um, but before we move on, I want to say one last thing on the waiver part is that um, there's a good chance that through this waiver process, we're not going to have to worry about temporary expanded public service loan forgiveness any longer because everybody's public service loan forgiveness counts should equal or exceed what they would have in the temporary public service loan forgiveness program. Yes, exactly. So that temporary um, expanded public service loan forgiveness is um, was a previous kind of attempt at a fix to public service loan forgiveness that Congress passed and said, hey, you know, people who are in the wrong repayment plan um, maybe should be given credit for payments they made under the wrong repayment plan. And so that is um, a, a way of counting payments that wouldn't have otherwise counted. Um, now, the temporary expanded public service loan forgiveness provision did not allow any payments made on non-direct loans to count towards forgiveness. So it's more limited and applied only to the repayment plan selection. Um, but it's the same form that we file to certify employment and to apply for forgiveness or for this temporary expanded consideration and for this limited waiver. Um, so, so really, as we've said, some borrowers with older loans will need to consolidate um, and 
and everyone should certify all of their public service work from October 1st, 2007 to the present. And they should do that um, before October 31st, 2022. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's very, you know, the, the big takeaway is certify employment, find out what kind of loans you have and determine if you need to consolidate. That's, that's the big takeaway here. The other components of trying to get your counts up and understanding it also a uh, good idea, but not, you know, actual items that need to happen. Uh, what borrowers need to do is certify employment, make sure they have the right type of loans. And now Heather, I will let you, because I know you've just been wanting to talk more about this rule negotiating process. Um, we can, we can kind of move on of, of how the, the department has, has, has taken, you know, this action, but the action they're taking afterwards is going to be much more expansive. And do we have, do we have an idea of um, maybe certain proposals that the Biden administration had put out prior to becoming um, president uh, of some of the changes that they would like to see and what they could actually accomplish through this rule negotiating process? Yeah, so there are a lot of important issues that are being addressed. I think one of the biggest ones that's going to have a lot of application is this borrower defense rule. Um, but that is primarily of um, applicable to borrowers who um, attended, you know, typically proprietary institutions and they're with, um, you know, fraud and abuse. Um, so a lot of the, a lot of important things will happen through the rulemaking process. But with regard to public service loan forgiveness in particular, um, the the department recognizes that the existing regulations are part of the problem and part of why people have had such difficulty meeting the requirements of the program. Um, but there are also limitations on what the department can do through the rulemaking process, and they are limited by the statute that was passed by Congress. As Jance mentioned, it's the College Cost Reduction and Access Act that created public service loan forgiveness. And so after this October 31st, 2022 date, the department will no longer be able to count payments on FELL loans. So there isn't any, that will not um, be able to be extended by the rulemaking process. There isn't any way to do that. Um, there, the department doesn't have that authorization from Congress. They're, again, they're using their emergency powers um, to do that. So they can't codify anything or build any rules around that emergency power. Um, that said, they can do some things in order to address some of the issues people have had, like with the um, undercounting of certain payments under certain repayment plans and the like. Um, it's a little unclear at this point. It's a little too early to say exactly where those regulations are going to end up. Um, but I can tell you, generally speaking, that the Department of Education acknowledges that the that public service loan forgiveness has been um, it, it has been too difficult for borrowers to meet the requirements, and they are. Uh, working in good faith to improve those rules. Um, and I will certainly advocate for them to be as good as they can be. Um, one of the things, for example, that I think might be useful is I, I do expect that um, that there will be some move to uh, clarify the definition of what counts as full-time. Um, as Jance said, it's been confusing in the past because those employers that had policies about full-time um, that, that required work of more than 30 hours per week um, were subjecting their employees to those requirements um, by way of this program. Uh, the department has um, recommended, and I would anticipate that that's where we would end up, just going to one definition of full-time and just letting 30 hours a week be enough, no matter what. Um, they've also are looking at um, ways to more readily include um, people who do teaching uh, service, but on more of a contingent basis. Some you might think of like adjunct faculty, for example. So there are some ideas for, you know, how to, to credit workers who are not uh, acknowledged by their employers as full time for, for purposes of, you know, benefits, but that who really are working 
um, in the public service a sufficient number of hours. So, you know, that's just sort of one example. Um, but what, what will, you know, in fact be of larger application to both public servants and others will be the possible creation of a new income driven repayment plan. So um, the Department of Education can't just go and eliminate the um, income based repayment plan that currently exists. Uh, it's, you know, a statutory in nature. Uh, and but what they can do is they have the authority under the Higher Education Act to promulgate new income driven plans using their authority um, actually related to um, what they call income contingent repayment options. Um, and so there are a lot of proposals being being discussed, including things like, you know, protecting larger share of borrowers income. Um, presently, most payments are set um, by after looking at 150% of the federal poverty rate. Um, there are proposals to look at a larger percentage of the federal poverty rate. There are also proposals to reduce payments from 10% of what we call discretionary income to some lower percentage of discretionary income. Um, there may be some combination of those things. Um, and it, it, it would also be possible or within the authority of the department to reduce the period of time before which um, forgiveness is earned by borrowers. Um, and I know Jance is aware that, you know, graduate and professional borrowers um, in the revised pay as you earn plan have to make payments for 25 years before cancellation, whereas those who only borrowed for undergraduate degrees are subject to a, a lower, a shorter period of time, 20 years. Um, those are the kinds of policies that are being considered or reconsidered. Um, and it's a little, you know, it's, it's rather unclear now where we'll end up on the income driven repayment. But that is something that people should listen for, um, you know, it, and it'll be, I, I guess, springtime when there will, there will be like a public comment period on whatever the revised rules are that the committee comes up with. Yeah. And, and so that, you know, there's a lot of input. There's a lot of moving pieces here. But the takeaway is that the department is looking into finding ways to administer the existing statutes in ways that are more favorable to borrowers than they have been in the past. Right. When we look at public service loan forgiveness, we're looking at things that we've been complaining about for years. Right. Pay to head status or a payment that's a penny late, not counting. Those things are they they seem to be wanting to take um, a more borrower friendly approach to. Um, and when we look at the statute in the College Cost Reduction and Access Act, um, we look at that and we say, you know, there is clearly nonprofit 501c3. There's clearly government. And then there's a whole other section that's uh, public service, but for pro for profit organizations that historically is, has been fairly ignored um, by the regulations. So I think there's an opportunity to kind of expand into that portion of public service as, as well. I think that's possible as well. It's not, it's, um, it's more likely that they will arrive at a subset of nonprofit organizations that are in addition to 501 C3. So, you know, for our listeners, a lot of, um, a lot of nonprofit organizations meet the requirement to be a charitable organization under um, section 501 C3 of the internal revenue code. But there are other kinds of nonprofits that don't qualify as C3s. And these are all kinds of different things, but sometimes they're like membership organizations or business leagues um, and the like. And if those sorts of nonprofits are doing uh, public service work or, or doing one of the listed, many listed public service -y kind of activities, um, folks who work for them may be able to qualify for forgiveness, but that's been, you know, really narrowly defined so far by the department. And so I'm advocating for a broader definition. Um, there will be some more conversation and negotiation about what that might look like. Um, so I think that that'll be worth, um, you know, sort of paying attention to. Um, but to be clear, you know, most people who do what we consider traditionally public service work are already covered by either working for a C3 or the government. 
Um, so it is going to be around kind of the the margins, um, but that's also you know important. Um, so yeah, so we're working on it, you know. Yeah, that's that's exciting. It's you know, it's, you said to me a long time ago that uh, providing advice around student loans is a, is a pretty secure profession because it's a constantly evolving world where people need help understanding and navigating all of these different rules and how they apply to each individual. So certainly lots of changes to come over the next uh, 18 months or so. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, and one of those big changes, Chance, that's coming up is people are going to have to start making payments on their loans again pretty soon. Yeah, it's been 18 months. Do you think people remember how to do that? I know I don't. I have forgotten all <laughs> about how to make payments on my student loans. Um <laughs> So yeah, so it's what it's about four months, and they come come the end of January, January thirty first, or, or February first. That's when payments can resume. Now, does that mean that everybody has to make a payment on February first, or what? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really going to depend upon what somebody's repayment plan was when the payments were suspended suspended back in March, or if they recertified their income during this payment suspension. Uh, in an income-driven repayment plan, they they may be in repayment but not have a payment due um, in February. So it's extremely important between now and February that borrowers figure out um, you know what their payment will be and if that's not something they can afford uh, or if their income has changed and been reduced, that they have that payment recalculated so that in February when payments start, they start at at the lower affordable amount for them. Um, it's also important um, that borrowers that are have been on these income-driven repayment plans try to determine when their recertification date is. And that's not, not as easy as, as it has been in the past uh, because the date, you know, historically you may have always been recertifying in October of each year. Well, um, different loan servicers have had leeway to change that to different points and push it out to different points in the, in the future. So it may actually now be June of next year, or it may be um, September of 2023 that you don't have to recertify by. Um, so the the policies and procedures with when borrowers that have been income in income driven repayment plans and have their recertification pushed out is all over the map, um, and it's not necessarily the same time you've done it in the past. So it's going to be pretty important for borrowers to. Um, try to figure out whether through the NSLDS file or communications with their loan servicers as to when they are actually going to be required to recertify in those plans again, because it's probably not what it has been in the past. Um, and of course, uh, we have two of the largest loan servicers, the two largest loan servicers, leaving loan servicing in the next year. Um, so borrowers are going to have to be making payments to a new organization at some point in time in the future when their loans move. Um, and they're going to want to be prepared for that by making sure their contact information at studentaid.gov and with their servicers all up to date. Um, so it's going to be a, a, a difficult process, as we've talked about in some of the other podcasts, with the loan repayments actually starting. That's right. And for people who are who are concerned that they may not be able to afford their payments when they restart, I think we want to go ahead and you know re-mention that income-driven repayment plans can can help people get affordable monthly payments that are driven by their income and their family size. Um, we're told that the loan servicing companies are meant to send billing statements to borrowers and they're supposed to get those out three weeks before you have to make a payment. So you're supposed to get some notification um, three weeks before a payment is due. It's important to keep your contact information up to date on your loan servicers website and in your studentaid.gov profile. They don't share information with one another. Um, and so you can contact your loan servicer. You can find out who they are on your studentaid.gov account. Um, and then they're the ones that decide um, whether, you know, when your payments are due. So we're told that, you know, so some of us had been making like auto debit payments to our loan servicers because you get a little interest rate reduction if you do that. Um, there's, it's, it's not clear whether auto debit payments are going to automatically restart when payments begin, uh, or not. 
Um, apparently, the servicers have been told to contact borrowers before the end of the payment suspension to see whether they want whether the borrower wants to remain on an auto debit if they were on an auto debit when the suspension um, began. Um, but then if they don't hear from you or if you don't respond, then they're not going to resume auto debit. Which is, which is probably, I think, a good rule because we don't want the servicers grabbing money out of your account unless you know, unless that's okay with you and you have enough money to get grabbed or you could get, you know, hit with fees and such. Um, on the other hand, you, you don't, you don't want to just be like, oh, la-di-da, I don't know if I have a payment due or not. Because if you do and you think it's going to be auto-debited, it may not be. Um, so, so you, so you need to figure out when you're going to have a payment due and you should do that by contacting your loan servicer in case they don't contact you, even though they are supposed to. Right. And sometimes those contacts go directly to your spam. So you don't see them anyway. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, that's where, that's where I'm always trying to put your stuff, but you keep popping up in my inbox. Yeah. I found, I found a way through the spam filters is what I, what I do best. <laughs> Uh, so Heather, I think that's uh, enough for, for this week. I'm sure we'll have to jump back on here shortly as there will be number of changes and issues and moving of servicers that will, that will be able to advise borrowers and, and their advisors on, um, and provide more information, but hopefully, um, we've gotten enough information now to help, uh, borrowers about this limited waiver, about payments restarting, and it gives you something to direct people to when they send you the 500 emails you get a day about the changes to public service loan forgiveness. That's right. I'll just be like, Hey, why don't you listen to this really, really long podcast where, where Janice and I are just ripping on student loans. Uh, and people will be like, um, I just wanted you to answer my question. <laughs> no, no, everybody loves yours. Everyone that, everyone that I talk to says they just wait for the next episode to, to come out because they're having a hard time, as you said, sleeping or with insomnia and they need, <laughs> they need that extra ability to fall asleep. Oh my night. gosh. And maybe one of these days we, we can be back together in person doing, doing our dog and pony show instead of remotely. That's true. Hope, hopefully soon we can have a, a, a student loan nerd conference, a CSLP conference somewhere for us all to, to get together and, and talk about these exciting and riveting topics. Indeed. Indeed. Yes. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening and we uh, will sign off.